Oscar Dahl. I'm here with Matthew Knutson, and this is We Like Movies. Matt, what's happening, buddy? Happy Sunday. Um, I'm fired up. I'm highly caffeinated, and uh, I got a lot to discuss with you today, uh, not the least of which is uh, the fact that a uh, film that's very, very near and dear to my heart just turned 30 today, as a matter of fact, and I'm interested if you could uh, potentially guess what that might be. Well, you know, before we start recording, yeah, you you gave me this little teaser. So it would be May twentieth, nineteen eighty-eight. Exactly. We would. I would be five. You'd be four years old at this time, I believe. Oh my goodness! Because your birthday's in July. Yeah. So I think you'd be four and I'd be five, right? Um, is it three men and a little lady? <laughs> That's not a bad guess. Is that 88 or 89? (laughs) I don't know. It's one of the two, and it's also, in addition to being uh, having been directed by uh, Leonard Nimoy, which is a fun fact, also was the highest-grossing film of that year. Yeah. uh, Pretty good guess. No, this movie was actually kind of a flop. (laughs) Just barely made its money back, uh, but has gone on to be kind of a cult classic, I would say. It was kind of a star-making role for its lead. Uh, for one of its two oh, leads, and it also comes courtesy of uh, a producer who is basically responsible for uh, the biggest film franchise of all time. What the fuck are you talking about? Directed um, by a guy who has a big movie coming out next week in which he basically takes on a film oh. in this franchise that was produced by was it george lucas splash <laughs> right director wrong movie right right era okay. you're, you're close keep going what was ron howard doing in the uh, late 80s uh backdraft um the early 90s i think you're, you're closing in on holy it. shit uh what, what are we talking about here oh uh willow there you go there we go okay okay Willow turns. I didn't look 30. at it. I didn't look it up. I knew it. I knew no, it. I knew we could get there together. Okay, uh, Willow you. turns thirty today, and it's a very important movie for me because Willow is basically the first film I remember seeing in a movie theater. Oh wow! And by that I mean it's like the first vivid, specific memory I have, like knowing exactly who I was with, feeling like I was too young to be watching this movie, although still really like being sort of blown away by it thinking to myself wow this is like the first adult movie i've ever been to even though (laughs) pg and clearly not an adult movie but five years old i think that might be a little too young to be seeing willow my my aunt my youngest aunt took me to it in may of 1988 in yakima washington and (laughs) despite the fact that i'd probably seen you know I'd, i'd probably seen i don't know the fox and the hound by that point or 
you know, follow that bird and, and obviously a bunch of um, Disney reissues, you know, the Jungle Book, shit like that. This sure. is the first like first run, first weekend movie, you know, non-animated movie in a movie theater. And so it's it's always going to hold a very special place in my heart as a result. And I don't revisit it that often, but I, I think it still holds up. I mean, there's a lot of hoke to it for sure. But uh, Val Kilmer is mad Martigan. He's a, he's a badass with that sword. You know, there's some really good, there's some pretty incredible special effects that still hold up pretty well. I mean, this was when ILM was flying real high in the late 80s. Man, I I am a fan of Willow. I don't revisit it very much. Um, And I do not remember what my first movie-going experience was. Five does seem pretty darn young, uh, especially for something like Willow. Um, I'm sure there are movies that I was taken to just to, you know, you know, get out of the heat or something, go get some AC with my mom, but... Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't recall my first one. That is, uh, that's an interesting memory. Why are, did she just live in Yakima? You spent a lot of time in Yakima when you were young? Yeah, my grandparents lived there for many, many gotcha. years. And, um, we used to visit them all the time. And my, and my aunt, uh, Jennifer, she was, um, she was a big sci-fi and fantasy person. Like she loved Star Wars, loved Star Trek, loved aliens. Like just, she was just like way into the genre stuff. Mm-hmm. And so she was big into fantasy. She probably would have been 19, you know, maybe 20 at the, you know, she babysit me all the time cause she wasn't that old. And, um, she drug me to this movie and basically I found out later that she sort of withheld a lot of information. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it was mostly just that she wanted to go. And yeah. I think that the, the deal was whatever you go to, you need to take him along. Cause we need, you know, he needs to be doing something. So she drug me to this movie that I probably shouldn't have seen. And she would like lean over and like put her hand over my eyes on occasion or whatever. But, uh, it had a, it had a very, I don't know. It had a big effect on me for sure. Yakima, the Palm Springs of Washington. Just, uh, <laughs> uh I did not have any ants like that. That's the right kind of ant to have. That's fantastic. I wish I'd I wish I'd been there. But Yeah. We used to go to lots of movies together. But that one was that one was seminal for sure. And um as a result, I think the movie is more special to me than it is for a lot of people. I mean, I, I, it's funny that it it took you a second to hone in on it because it really is in the in the Ron Howard oeuvre. It is kind of like the lost Ron Howard movie in a lot of ways. <laughs> sure, it's bonkers that he directed that movie. Yeah. If you look, it's fun to go back and do a little deep dive and see pictures of him on the set because he had this bright red mustache at the time <laughs> and he just looks sort of ridiculous and then you start to sort of like connect the dots you're like oh yeah that's right he was an american graffiti which george lucas obviously directed um obviously you know they remain friends and and ron howard went on to become you know this great director and now he's he's been brought on to direct the the new solo movie kind of bringing this whole thing full circle for even though he clearly wasn't the first choice for that film but he was the first choice for Willow. Lucas apparently handpicked him to direct Willow. He was the only director ever ever attached to that film. It's 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 interesting. This like his what he's become in Hollywood. He's just like sort of no nonsense, mercenarial, just gets the job done. Well respected, everyone likes him. Um, and you know he, he's definitely not some sort of auteur, but he'll go down with a with a whole litany of really great films and a lot of forgettable films and a lot of mediocre films, but. Uh, He's still Ron Howard, and everyone likes him. You can't help but help but love the guy. Yeah, I I think it's fashionable to sort of take shots at the guy, or you know, he's not an auteur or whatever. And we'll obviously discuss him at length next week when we talk about Solo. But 
I got a lot of affection for Ron Howard, and he really has, he, he did direct a lot of films that I feel were, have a lot of sentimental value for me. Willow is important, obviously, but Apollo 13 is also incredibly important because that movie is significant as it is in that it's the first film I ever went to by myself. And uh, in 1995, I still have the ticket stub. And... Uh, <laughs> I swear to God, this is the very first ticket stub I ever saved, and I've, I've saved most of them since, but that's the first one I ever saved, and that would have been June of 95. Yeah, and um, and obviously I go see most movies by myself, so it obviously was a significant experience for me. And that I still consider to be probably his best film, but I've loved so many. You mentioned Splash. You mentioned Backdraft. Uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a Beautiful Mind defender. I like Rush a lot. I like uh, Frost Nixon a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's made a lot of films that I that I think are really, really wonderful. And from what I've heard about, at the risk of pushing this into solo territory prematurely, from what I've heard about the film, is it turns out that it's a miracle how sort of like cohesive it is. The problems that it ha- has are significant, but it also appears to be, you know, the work of somebody who came along and did exactly what Kathleen Kennedy needed him to do which was to kind of like bring all these disparate elements together in a very clean way. Yeah, I mean, he's also directed a lot of studio schlock, you know? There's the the whole yeah. Dan Brown trilogy. <laughs> uh, the fact that he was producer on The Dark Tower is really offensive because they fucked that a million times. He also produced, like, what, Cowboys and Aliens? Um, sure. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a really interesting filmography um, and career he is he's had, but we'll get to that next week. You're a you're an Arrested Development person, right? No, no, I'm not. Oh, you're not. Never seen never seen a single episode. I've seen I've I've tried to watch it a few times. I'm, I've got nothing against it, but I just it's hard for me to do TV shows. You know, I, I, it's hard for me to commit. I like movies, so that's my thing. Uh, but I'm not I'm not anti Arrested Development, so I, I appreciate his. Uh, what he what he's done for for that? I mean, he, he didn't do anything but sort of executive produce, right? Did he direct any episodes? I know he's narrating it, or he... he's na- he's the narrator. Yeah, yeah, that's that's his most significant contribution, and he does actually show up on screen in a couple of episodes. But the reason I bring it up is because it's basically the fifth season is going to come out pretty much concurrent with Solo, and I got a lot of thoughts about the fact that we're at season five, and there was the whole controversy with season four, and Netflix, and Jeffrey Tambor, and I don't know, just a lot going on with that show <laughs> in terms of zeitgeist but i guess i'll have to have that conversation with myself because you're not going to be you're not going to be much help yeah sorry man got nothing to say about that <laughs> um all right enough willow talk uh you want to discuss uh the can film festival a little bit we just had the awards come out um japanese film shoplifters won the palm door uh black klansman won the grand prix right um i believe powell Pawlikowski or Pavel Pawlikowski, mm-hmm. uh, Polish director of, of Ada. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he won Best Director for, uh, I was going to say Civil War, for um, Cold War, mm-hmm. which is a movie many people have been tapping to maybe win the Palm d'Or. Other than that, you know, obviously a lot of more obscure foreign stuff that, um, you know, we don't know much about yet because we haven't seen these movies yet yes <laughs> but it sounds like as with many uh cans in years past these films aren't necessarily going to make much of a wave stateside uh besides perhaps black Klansmen, which sounds like it's something of a spike lee return to form mm-hmm. but we'll we'll have to see him and it definitely sounds like it's right up his alley and um it seems like it was very well received so let's see if it turns out you know if it ends up becoming kind of like the watershed uh hot button you know get out-esque film of 2018. I mean, Jordan Peele, I think, is one of the producers on the film. So, yeah, and you know, 
every year uh, I like to say with Ken that it's it's really hard to suss out even from the critical reception the actual quality of a movie because it feels like there's so much noise so much pomp and circumstance going on during the festival that it's uh, it, you know critics are easily swayed one way or the other or there's just a lot of noise going on so um, I like to wait and see but uh, I am cautiously optimistic about Black Klansman for sure and yeah I'm rooting for Spike uh, it sounds like Under the Silver Lake turned out to be just too weird for people, um, which I think is kind of a good sign. I'm getting more and more excited for that film. I saw the word problematic getting used a lot <laughs> in various oh, really? uh, reviews <laughs> of the film. So because I think be due to the main character's relationship with all the female characters, uh-huh. yeah, we'll, we'll see. But I'm excited. It is interesting that um, Topher Grace, speaking of uh, Under the Silver Lake and uh, Black Klansman, Topher Grace became the basically the american face of the Cannes film festival this year i don't think anybody saw that coming <laughs> no <laughs> so good for tofer um, though good yeah way. yeah i mean i think he's playing david duke right the head of the kkk in black clans black Klansman. Mm-hmm. so uh we'll see it'd be interesting if he if he uh emerges as some sort of dark horse awards contender for because it seems like a you know a role like that is something he could really dig his teeth into i was reading an article uh, or an interview with him the other day where he was basically saying, uh, I made so much goddamn money from that 70s show, I don't really have to work again if I don't want to. <laughs> Which sounds kind of pompous, but it's also I appreciate the honesty of it. And then he's like, yeah, I can afford to be really choosy and do risky projects like this because I can I can just live off my um, that 70s show residuals for the rest of my life and be totally fine. Which, I mean, that's why you do a sitcom for 10 years, right? Yeah, I mean, it's... it's like, it, we're, we're, we did it. We're syndicated. This is this is mailbox money forever now. Yeah, it's easy for him to say that, but most people don't take that path, it seems like. You know, they still want to... They're still vying for, for whatever movie work or more TV work that they can they can get. So if, if you're able to not seek that fame, it doesn't seem like Topher Grace is trying to do that, then he's he's taking the right path for sure. I, you know, obviously, the, the festival started with all of this controversy, all this Netflix stuff. And it seemed like sort of controversy and protests sort of defined the festival for better or for worse this year with, you know, Kristen Stewart taking her heels off and taking selfies in, in, in defiance or uh, Kate Blanchett, the head of the jury, leading a, a women's protest up the stairs of the Palais. Mm-hmm. So it seemed like that. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because here we are in 2018. We're exactly 50 years removed from the... So from the student protests of 1968 when protests basically shut down the Cannes Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, G- Godard having a lot to do with that, and now Godard's back with a new film this year, which apparently is quite good, um, and actually got picked up for distribution. Oh, wow. So, you know, it seemed like it was a contentious festival for sure, but it seemed like some great things emerged from it. Uh, Gaspar Noe's new film, Climax, is his best received film in years it seems like his most uh, approachable film too in a long time i guess yeah yeah it sounds like it's it sounds like it's a whole lot of fun it sounds like it's basically a musical yeah. um which will be kind of fun uh in contrast to uh lars von trier's new movie the house that jack built which apparently is not approachable and apparently quite uh, quite traumatic and ghastly yeah and his most off-putting work for uh I don't know, since what? Antichrist? Yeah, Antichrist, maybe? certainly. Probably. Um, um, so, yeah, I'm sort of not looking forward to the Lars von Trier movie, but I am looking forward to the Gaspar Noe movie. be fun. Yeah, it it really it, it made me realize that I, I'm way overdue to take, to, to like, 
revisit his oeuvre because it's actually not that vast and Mm -hmm. he might be an interesting dark horse contender to uh, factor into our oeuvre podcast someday yeah i can do that (laughs) because he is clearly like such an auteur but hasn't made so many films that it's insurmountable you know but he's he's not really slowing down yet you know so he's gonna keep pumping shit out it feels like yeah so and he also he also tends to make movies in the english language so (laughs) for our purposes he's, he's a little more a little more approachable although i've yet to see his film love his most recent film before this one and uh apparently that one really sort of like pushes the the boundaries <laughs> of what constitutes uh pornography yeah exactly not that not that i'm not that i'm a prude or anything but uh, if we were um sort of encouraging our listenership to follow us on these uber paths that one might be a little more <laughs> problematic <laughs> to use that word again but no this is i mean this it sounds like it was for the most part a good year very few you know american films and very few films that in, that involved uh, movie stars. So I think it was uh, pretty. It, it was difficult for press and paparazzi this year because there were so few people to you know take pictures of, and the whole selfie thing was instituted. So I think it was a particularly frustrating year for the press, but I think it was a great year for uh, for filmgoers because it sounds like there'll be some really fun stuff to to look at in the next few months. Speaking of the press, I did read that they switched up uh, the longstanding press screening system so press never got to see the movie before the public did or before like the the you know the premiere the premiere right um which is different and sort of i I guess makes a little bit of sense you don't want buzz uh, critical buzz coming out to ruin the sort of vibe of the premiere itself but i think it also puts sort of a lag on critical reception for for movies as well yeah, it, it, this is clearly a film festival that is in the midst of a serious existential crisis, right? <laughs> For sure, yeah. I mean, this is a festival that is struggling to define its personality in the midst of uh, this new world order, this new world distribution order. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, we discussed it a couple of weeks back, how we kind of respect their the fact that they put their foot down on this thing. But I do sort of wonder how long they're able to maintain this unified front before they finally have to concede certain things like the first the first domino that's going to fall has got to be this distribution window right there's no way they can keep this 36 month thing i mean i've even heard that the meetings have already started happening because it's it's a law it's a it's a it's it's a countrywide law mm-hmm. that something has to be in theaters for 36 months there's no way that stays you know in in, in a world in which you know drug laws are being loosened and marital laws are being loosened uh, <laughs> clearly, like theatrical window laws have, have got to be, you know, have got to become a little more realistic here, right? Yeah, Which exactly. Maybe, and also we have. I think we. I think there's at least. Three will you films Will you explain the 36 up. month window to like the to to our listeners? Because I'm not sure many people understand it. Uh yeah. I, I'd I certainly wouldn't purport to be some sort of expert, but the way I understand it is that from from the moment of the very first public screening in a movie theater in the country of France, uh, a film is not allowed exhibition on any sort of non-theatrical um, platform for at least 36 months, which is three years. So if Deadpool comes out in France, you know, Deadpool came out, let's say Deadpool came out in France two days ago, it cannot exist on television or, you know, on cable or in any sort of like online capacity like Netflix for three years from the date of its first theatrical screening. But uh, in terms of like official um, government sanctioned exhibition methods, uh, you need to give at least three years between 
theater and whatever the next platform is. Fair. <laughs> which is which is ridiculous in this day and age, you know. Like I'll just go ahead and say it. Like that's that's way too long. Three years is way too long. <laughs> yeah, it's insane. I mean, it's it's all it's always been insane, but it's especially crazy now. Yeah. Um, all right, Matt. Should we move on to the main course here? <sighs> if we have to, I, I sure you don't want to keep. I'm sure I can find more things to talk about with Can. Do we do we need to move? <laughs> no, we gotta we gotta do it. All right, all right, fine. Matt, all right. Let's get this over with. Deadpool two. I believe the last time I looked, it was uh, 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, something like that. Yeah, it sounds right. I mean, we we discussed this at length during our Infinity War podcast, but maybe we're getting to the point where we really need to be taking Rotten Tomatoes with a few more than a few grains of salt, right? Like the Rotten Tomatoes thing has become, I think, a little bit troubling in terms of how okay. you know the idea the idea that, that this is an 86 percent movie just based on the uh, the algorithm you know the rotten tomatoes algorithm is i think a completely inaccurate way of representing this film but continue i'll, I'll, I'll save my opinions for the main event okay so probably more fair metacritic which which bases it on like a zero to 100 scale for each review has it at a, at a 66 all right Okay. That's a, okay. that's a little little more accurate, I would say. Uh, we both saw the first one. I think I like the first one a tad bit more than you, but not as much as the general public. Is, is that is that seem right? Uh, yeah, I think so. When the first one came out, I was incredibly skeptical, and then it became this big old phenomenon that I sort of had to go to begrudgingly. And I, you know, I guess I certainly liked it more than I'd expected to, and haven't really had a cause to revisit it. But I don't. I don't dislike it necessarily. I, I'm I am still a little bit vexed as to why this phenomenon really caught fire the way that it did, leading up to this very to the sequel, which is you know hotly anticipated and did I think 135 million over the weekend, which is very respectable. Although interestingly enough, not better than the original. Yeah, original Deadpool had a better opening weekend than the sequel, which is crazy when you consider how well the original like. Like the the fact that the the original made 150 million or something in its opening weekend in February is is bonkers. Yeah. And do you, do we do we think that Infinity War actually took some of the audience away from Deadpool this weekend? Is that is that the issue? Like that in February when the original opened, it it had zero predators, it had no competition whatsoever. Yeah, it had no competition. I think we've learned in in Hollywood slowly learning that during the winter people are still sort of looking for something to do. Maybe especially during the winter. So if you give them give them a tasty morsel in the middle of February with no competition, it's going to do well, right? So yeah, I, I think uh, Avengers probably had something to do with it. That said. It's still going to make a fuck ton of money because it wasn't even, it's not like a crazy huge budget uh, on the scale of uh, a Marvel or Avengers type type movie. It's also amazing to consider that uh, a month from now when Sicario 2 Day of the Soldado comes out, <laughs> there'll be three, there'll be three Josh Brolin films in the theater simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah, there will. He's just really having a moment, that guy. Uh, Matt, I didn't like this movie very much. <laughs> I, I hated this movie so much, um, and I, I feel like I haven't been doing a very good job. Of no, you haven't. That. No, you haven't. I I hated this movie so much. I haven't hated a movie this much in a really really long oh, time. Man. And um, and I'm I, I gotta say I'm a little surprised to hear that we're on the same page about this because I I was in a theater where people were just absolutely eating the shit up. I mean they were 
They were losing their minds. Like I haven't heard people laugh that hard in the longest time, clapping, cheering, roaring, every single reference, every single joke. Um, you know, all the mid-credit stuff was just, I mean, people were just beside themselves, like rolling in the aisles. It was a huge, huge response. And I sat there like fucking Grandpa Knutson with my arms folded. And I think the most I did the entire, I think a couple times I may have gone, huh, huh, huh. But that's about as much. That's about as much as I responded to it. I really, really was was my fuddy-duddy self this time around. I absolutely hated this movie. This is the frustrating thing. So this movie, as like sort of just a general narrative action movie, is not very impressive. It's very simple. There's really not much to the story. Um, okay, so get that out of the way. It's not satisfying in that regard. So you say, okay, what is this movie? It's a fucking. It's a comedy. It's meant to be a comedy. Um, I was my girlfriend and I. We were primed and ready. Like, you know, maybe there were a couple of puffs on a joint before going into this movie. Like, Friday night, we were fucking... <laughs> maybe. Maybe. <laughs> may have been some like, of that. Like, you know, more or less full house. Like, we were ready. And um, I, I think I laughed or chuckled maybe once or twice during this whole thing. Do you remember what the gags were that actually got a response at it? Because I can't remember the couple times that I giggled. What I didn't take note of what those jokes even were. No, I can't remember either. That's how forgettable this movie so is forget- for me. Yeah, it, it was... Uh, the, everything is said in the form of a joke, right? And then yeah. so most of the time it's not, not that funny. Um, and it's sort of reference porn, too. It's you know, sort of like uh, meta-reference shit. And, and that's not particularly funny to me. I mean, it, it's almost like sort of the worst parts of Family Guy, that kind of humor. Yeah. I feel like just just like randomness for the sake of randomness. I mean, it really does come down to a very simple thing where it's trying to be funny and I didn't find it very funny at all. And, you know, when when you're not laughing, like the the hardcore violence can even be a little little off-putting here too. I wish they just leaned into this being like a cool action movie, you know, being a cool X-Men movie. Spoiler alert, not that you care and you can figure this out, uh, you know, with a few clicks, but um, one of the main bad guys in this movie is fucking Juggernaut. Yeah. Which is like, sweet, fuck yeah, Juggernaut, the best character from the uh, X-Men animated series, right? <laughs> and they don't let Juggernaut do like really any Juggernaut-y things during this, whole, <laughs> during this movie, right? Like you want to see him fucking bust through walls and rip shit up, but we don't get to see any of that. And Cable's not as badass as you'd like him to be. Like there's, they really lean super hard into this being a, you know, meta referency comedy you know, if it doesn't work in that regard, which I don't think it did, it the movie just uh, just sucks. It's a movie that's trying to be two things simultaneously, and it fails at both. It's like two halves of a movie that together don't make up a whole. Mm-hmm. It's basically it wants to be this you know crazy reference heavy sort of nihilistic meta commentary on the form that's like very above it all like understands what it is it knows it's a movie wants to comment on the fact that it's a movie wants to make all these references wants to comment on the fact that it knows Josh Brolin is also Thanos you know which is playing in a theater next door wants to comment on the fact that that the dead Deadpool Ryan Reynolds knows he already played Deadpool in a Wolverine movie knows he already played Green Lantern make comments about that isn't this great we know who we are we get it we get that you get it and we get that you getting it makes it even it's it's like attempting to be this like heavily experimental thing that's very snarky and nihilistic and that's fine but then it also wants to sort of like have its cake and eat it too on the conventional side right 
Like yeah. It also wants to be about the hero's journey. It also wants to be a pretty straight down the line comic book narrative in the same way that the first one was. And that's where it's at its weakest, right? The idea of like the character wanting, you know, needing to sort of take responsibility for his life, understand what it means to be part of a family, understand what it means to be a responsible adult or whatever, to be part of the X-Men or X-Force or, mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, to like take the high road even while he's, you know, chopping people's heads off and making all these jokes. It wants to have it both ways. And to me, that's incredibly disingenuous and is like the major failing of this burgeoning franchise is I wish it would commit to one or the other because I really don't think it can, it can't exist in both worlds simultaneously. At least for me, it it does. It's not a movie. It doesn't, it's, it doesn't function as like fundamentally as a satisfying movie. It's like I said, these two halves that really aren't satisfying for me. And I don't think that this movie really works if you don't understand most of the references. You know, like I don't really think that the references are funny. Yeah. But at least if you understand them, you kind of get where the movie's coming from and you can follow its logic there. But I think if you don't understand all this sort of, you know, inside baseball stuff, I, I presume that this would be incredibly baffling <laughs> for your average sure. audience. And if that side doesn't work for you, then you have to latch on to the more conventional narrative stuff. And to me, it is so thin and so clunky and so unsatisfying that I don't think it works on that level either. Yeah, it's look, uh, even if you do understand the references, making a reference is, is not the same as making a joke. Exactly. Right? I have like, that I, written in my notes here. Like just because <laughs> it's a reference doesn't make it a joke. Yeah, right. and, and I mean, what you mentioned earlier, like, it's trying to comment on the form of comic book movies, but it's, like, everything about Deadpool is sort of worse than the form as it exists right now, right? Like, if you, especially if you talk about Marvel stuff. We were walking out of the theater, and my girlfriend turned to me and said, I think I laughed more during The Avengers. <laughs> sure. Like, and I was like, yeah, I definitely laughed more during <laughs> Infinity War yeah. um, than, than this movie. Like, the, the movie was actually funnier and with a, you know, far, far better narrative and I got nothing against Ryan Reynolds I think he's fine in in, in short bursts but my god like this is so I think we have the same complaint about the first one too it's just so Ryan Reynolds-y throughout like it's just just hammering it into your skull the whole time and there's there's no break from it it just it just gets gets pretty old well yeah uh, he he actually has a he actually has a co-writer credit this time around (laughs) Yeah. You know, he's one of the three writers. And honestly, like in doing a little bit of research about this, I found out that the whole the, the, the Tim Miller leaving the project, you know, the original the, the director of the first film mm-hmm. um, that Reynolds, that his creative differences with Reynolds basically was like the, the final straw. Yeah. The fact that he and Reynolds were conflicting about where to take this thing. The studio just eventually went with like, well, Reynolds is the movie star and Tim Miller, you've made one movie. So sorry, we know who we're going with. And uh, I was I was reading this article from Deadline uh, from last year. At the end of October of uh, 2017, Miller left the film over mutual creative differences with Re- with Reynolds, based on several factors, including Reynolds' expanded creative control over the sequel, Miller's wish for a more stylized follow-up for the first film, versus Reynolds' focus on the raunchy comedy style that earned their first movie its R rating, and Miller's intention to cast Kyle Chandler as Cable, which Reynolds opposed. <laughs> All uh, right, which is kind of interesting. So yeah, this has become really a Ryan Reynolds, Ryan Reynolds vanity project situation. Yeah. And it's ironic that like one of the most famous 
faces in uh, in entertainment is covered up by this mask for so much of the screen time. And apparently there was a concerted effort this time around to show his face on screen as much as possible. Reynolds uh, pushed back against that, not because he doesn't want his beautiful face to be shown on camera, but because apparently the, all the makeup prosthetic stuff is so incredibly unpleasant and time consuming <laughs> that he was just like, oh, can't, can't I just wear the mask? I don't want to put the goddamn makeup on again. But the studio insisted like, no, we need to see your face more. We need to see your face more. So there's this weird sort of tension going on here in terms of how this is really a Ryan Reynolds vanity thing. And yet you don't see his face very much. And yes, his face is so, so significant. And yet he wants to make comments about his own career and even go so far as to, in the uh, mid-credit sequence, to go back and literally execute other versions of himself yeah. in the context of this movie, which a lot of people are saying is the smartest thing that the movie does, or the, you know, the most biting, the most revolutionary thing the movie does. I don't really find it to be that. I, I, all I can think about is those fans that I, you know, I don't necessarily count myself as one, but think about those people out there who are like, I really liked X-Men Origins Wolverine, or <laughs> maybe I really like Green Lantern. And this movie is basically saying, no, you're stupid for liking those movies. Yeah. Like, like you're wrong. Your taste is bad. If you like those movies, if you got something out of them, if you like that version of the character, and if you like what Ryan Reynolds did with Green Lantern, uh, that, that means you're, you're intellectually inferior. Yeah. And we're literally going to execute that, property on screen here to prove how inferior those movies are <laughs> and to me i don't know that just confuses that I, I find i get very conflicted about that personally yeah. poor this martin movie Campbell, is so gleeful right? about it yeah well <laughs> um, always have casino royale to fall back on <laughs> exactly uh yeah i mean reading between the lines i read some of the same articles you did it, i remember they mentioned at one point that uh miller's version would be like two or three times the budget of what eventually was the budget for Deadpool 2. Mm-hmm. And how much of that is hyperbole, who knows? But, you know, I can see both sides in that regard. Like, I would have, I think, creatively, a more slick, you know, action-packed, you know, X-Men movie featuring some sort of, you know, some some minor comedy and some some hijinks from, from Deadpool or whatever. I mean, you can, you can keep it raunchy, keep it rated R, but it doesn't have to be full-blown joke reference per minute comedy like that would have been a better movie i think you know ryan reynolds can be proven right here this movie's gonna make a fuck ton of money on not a huge budget um yeah and they'll just roll it back and they'll do it again for deadpool 3 so you know he's having the last laugh and you know he's the <laughs> one who who fought to make this movie and make it like he wanted to make it and the fucking masses have followed so uh you know this movie was never trying to win an oscar so i guess you know, <laughs> we're, we're just the curmudgeons on the couch talking shit about it right? truly i mean i really honestly i felt a lot i uh, this has been happening to me more and more recently and i guess it's just a part of getting older which is like i really felt an incredible uh pang of kinship towards my father <laughs> and watching this movie and i'll explain uh the the backstory behind that i remember vividly going to see wayne's world 2 in the theater with some friends and then at some point when the movie came out on vhs we were like at my dad's house and we were there with like his girlfriend and some you know some other you know her daughter just you know family friends on a saturday night mm-hmm. and we're like hey we're gonna watch wayne's world 2 because it was one of those movies it's like okay it's a little raunchy you know to watch with your parents but also PG thirteen, like it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't crazy to sit down and watch that movie with your family. I don't think I would do it again today necessarily, but at the time it had just come out of VHS. It was a thing. Let's all watch it together on a Saturday night. And I remember sitting there and laughing through the whole thing, and everybody was going crazy. And I looked over at my dad at one point. And he was just sort of sitting there, stone faced. <laughs> and I felt kind of bad because I was like, "Yeah, he's really not getting much out of this. This was a bad idea." And afterwards, I saw him kind of 
stewing over a little bit and I, I could see he was very conflicted and I, I asked him you know what he thought or what was going on or he clearly didn't like it and I remember him saying something to the effect of I understood every joke I get why it's funny and I get why people would laugh at it but I just don't have that response to it <laughs> you know he was basically just like I get that it's supposed to be funny just for me it's not funny and I was like oh yeah that must be such a weird thing to get to a point in your life where you just don't respond to something that is like empirically quote unquote comedic, right? Or you're just like, this just doesn't work for me. This just doesn't, it doesn't scratch that itch for me anymore. And you're just like, maybe it's an age thing or maybe I'm just not the audience for this particular thing. But that's how I felt when watching this. It's like, oh, I, I get all these references. I get all these quote unquote jokes. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just not working for me. And maybe, maybe it's just something I need to, maybe it's just a time when I need to start getting comfortable with the fact that that's going to happen for me more and more. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it, obviously, is just natural aging. But, you know, the more you, the more movies you see, the more information you gather in your brain, the more you start to see the seams. Yeah. Um, in, in these movies, and especially, you know, enhanced more with comedies because, you know, we've seen these setups and these punchlines and these references and, and all this shit that's supposed to be comedic for, for years and years and years in so many different uh, venues and, you know, w- whether it's film or TV. Again, I, I think seeing the seams and understanding how these jokes were crafted and why they were crafted sort of takes the fun and enjoyment out of it, right? Like, and comedy is a weird thing because if you can logically understand why it's happening or how it's happening in the moment then it's not going to be effective right like the the comedy is surprise right comedy is a i remember conan o'brien saying once uh comedy is is thinking incorrectly like to write comedy you have to you have to think wrong because that's the only way you're gonna garner surprise from the audience right Okay. Um, and and so, <laughs> I, I guess people who enjoy sort of the the reference humor, it, it's it is surprise surprising in in some way. But I, you know, apparently to us it's not. And I don't want to begrudge anybody who had a fucking great time at this movie. Like if you did, more power to you, and I'm I'm happy for you. I'm not saying you're dumb. Yeah. Um, it just uh, just didn't hit me. And, you know, comedy is also about the sort of mood you're in when you go see it. So maybe that, that was it. But as I said, I was I was about in as perfect a comedy <laughs> viewing mood as could possibly be. So uh, yeah. I, I feel like I, <laughs> I saw it in the right mindset and I've uh, I'm allowed to say I didn't find it funny. It got me thinking a lot about uh, Ready Player One, actually. Because I feel like that's a movie that a lot of people were very sort of <clears throat> turned off by because of uh, because of its kind of approach and what it means metatextually. And I actually really enjoyed that movie in spite of myself. But I found myself thinking while watching Deadpool, oh, I, I get it. I get why so many people were so sort of like almost offended mm-hmm. <laughs> fundamentally by Ready Player One because that's kind of how this whole thing left me. Like really, I don't want to be hyperbolic about it, but... As somebody who never has never gotten up and left a movie before it's over and who sits through everything, no matter how much he may be uh, hating the experience, this this was the closest I think I've come to in a long time of being like, you know, I could just stand up and leave. <laughs> like, I was oh, wow. like, oh, I mean, I went to go see a really late show and it had been an incredibly long day. And maybe that, <laughs> I mean, it was the end of a really long week, you know, like 13 hour day at work. Sure. And this was, you know, I saw this show started at like 1130. And I was like, Jesus Christ. And this is a two-hour movie as well, you know, and you go to see it at an AMC on a Friday night, and there's 25 minutes of trailers. Yeah. 
And I was just like, I, I could just leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, plus I'd also had a really bad experience because I tried to use my movie pa- my you know movie pass card. Yeah, and, and it had gotten rejected. That's a whole other story Ugh. altogether. But maybe I was maybe. But, maybe you but were so happy that very curmudgeonly, yeah. In the worst possible scenario, but I'm so glad that you were there and you were you were excited and you were stoned and you were with your girlfriend and it was a. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm glad that we were both on opposite ends of the extreme. <laughs> we both still hated it because yeah. that makes me feel better. But yeah, I was just like I. I for the first half, I was honestly considering. I was like, maybe I should just get up and leave. I will say that the second half is better. Mm-hmm. The second half, it definitely improves after they get out of the prison and after they start to assemble the X Force or whatever. It gets it gets a little better. It gets a little funnier, um, and the jokes. Some of the jokes actually start to land, and a, a part of that might be because of this weird sort of cameo thing it, it gets into, which we can discuss. Mm-hmm. Where Brad Pitt. Matt Damon and Alan Tudyk show up for some reason. Yeah. Uh, no Stan Lee, interestingly enough. This is the only Marvel film without a Stan Lee cameo. Did you notice that? Uh, yeah, I was looking for him. I, I assumed I just missed him, but you know, he's been having his health issues here. So. Yeah, and legal issues, apparently. Um, but no Stan Lee, but Brad Pitt and Matt Damon show up, oddly enough. It seems like Matt Damon might be getting to a point in his career, thanks to some of his problems that have arisen from some of his you know, comments in interviews recently. <laughs> And the fact that he apparently moved his family to Australia <laughs> in the last couple of months. Seems like maybe Matt Damon's just going to do cameos in Marvel movies for the rest of his career or something. Uh, yeah, he might do that. I, I, I doubt it. Um, you know, like, yeah, I want to say I didn't hate this movie. I, I thought it, it's fun enough. Uh, I'm, I don't hate it. I just, I just wish I had the experience that seemingly all these other people are having with it. You're always going to be a little bit offended when, personally offended, when you think, something's not funny and everyone else is finding it funny. You're going to be like, come on, come on, guys. But, you know, I, I, I like Rob Delaney. <laughs> Rob Delaney's funny. Yeah, I wish they would have done a little more with that, honestly. That, you know, that that's a funny sequence, but, the you know, I didn't even think about it at the time, but I was reading an article on Slash Film where these guys make a really good point that that entire joke, like that entire conceit is completely ripped off from MacGruber. Yeah. Like the idea of putting together this incredible team and then immediately killing them off, it's not really an original idea. Well, MacGruber is a comedy classic, and Deadpool 2 is <laughs> not. So. Speaking of slash film, uh, Ethan Anderton also wrote an article over there, and I, I, needed, to, um, I needed to pull this, this quote from him because I think it's so astute and, and so erudite. He says in reference to uh, Deadpool 2, it's almost like when a kid figures out that he has a great joke that makes his parents laugh and he keeps trying to replicate that same response and it has <laughs> diminishing returns. And that's that's exactly how I feel about this movie. Like going to see the first one, I was like, okay, that was funny. That was kind of clever. Like, yeah, it's the equivalent of a, of a kid coming in and making some some sort of offhand joke that really brings the house down. Like, okay, cute. Go back to your room. And this is the equivalent of the kid like staying down in the party and just continuing to recite the same joke over and over and over again until finally it's like, hey, somebody needs to really get that kid out of here. Like, can't we get the kid back to his room? This just isn't working for anymore. We're just fucking this joke to death. Again, like, I, I wonder where they go from here. I mean, I assume Deadpool 3 is going to just be more of the same, but with X-Force, uh, apparently, you know, this whole X-Men universe now is is going pretty deep into the R-rated versions of these movies uh, i think the next one's dark phoenix that's not going to be r-rated but who the fuck knows where they're going to go from here i suppose they can just keep branching out with this deadpool thread maybe have spinoffs from here just given how wildly 
successful it's been. But I don't know. Like I, I don't know if people are going to have the appetite for for how you know how many more of these movies they're going to be stoked for. But they made a joke out of the whole X Force situation. But that movie is. I think in pre-production, like yes, it it's is. already on IMDb, right? Yeah, it is. I'm assuming that's what Deadpool three will be, right? It'll be Deadpool three colon X Force or X Force featuring Deadpool and Cable or something. Yeah, I think it's gonna be Deadpool, Cable, and Domino, and they're gonna yeah. create a super team and do some shit. So let's try and be a little more positive about this because we've been super critical. Um, in terms of things that we liked, uh, I thought that uh, Brolin was great. As, as always, when is Brolin not great? You know, like, it's a silly character, it's underwritten, and there's a weird reversal that happens with that character here, but uh, but he's great, right? He's always, I mean, yeah, Brolin can Brolin. make anything work. He made Thanos work. Yeah, no, Josh Brolin's right? fantastic. Okay. Big fan. Okay, we can all agree, we can all agree <laughs> that, that Josh Brolin's great. <laughs> um, and then uh, someone else that I really, really liked is um, uh, Zazie, Zazie Beats. Mm-hmm. I'm not. I've never seen. I've never seen Atlanta, but um, apparently she's quite wonderful on that, and she's really wonderful here. It's a super silly character, but they again they they make it work, sort of in, in spite of itself. And I thought she was just uh, incredibly charming. I, I kind of wanted the movie to just pivot and focus on her, honestly. Yeah, she's a lot of fun. I mean, it's a very silly superpower, as they, <laughs> you know, as they, as they comment upon during the film. Um, and I'm not sure you can <laughs> how much of just her getting lucky you could take over the course of the movie right because yeah, it is yeah. requires a lot of again silliness but uh she was quite delightful uh marina Bakarin comes back in this one as as his wife <sighs> I, I said we we're gonna be i was gonna be positive for a second <laughs> i've already brought up something that really bugs me after spending the entire first movie trying to get these two back together they just kill her off in the first five minutes which i get is some sort of commentary on the form perhaps but don't you pretty much just invalidate the entire first movie in that moment? Slash, don't you just invalidate this entire movie by using the little time twister at the end and bringing her back to life? Yeah. Oh, I, this movie I, just confounds me at every turn. I guess I wasn't bothered by it because I didn't really care. Yeah, that's that's a good way. To, <laughs> that's, my, that's my problem in life. I just, I care too much. That's why I say at every job interview. What do you think your greatest weakness is? I don't know. I care too much. Care too much. Uh, yeah, I, I, I never really gave a shit about, about them, and uh, I didn't give a shit about it this time either. And I sort of got by the end of this movie i did get sick of the like him going to the heaven apartment over and over again it's like i didn't need any more of 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 that i thought that was pretty schlocky and stupid yeah and they keep they keep doing this cover oh man this brings up a whole other can of worms with this movie's like this movie's this franchise's relationship with needle drops they keep going back to this uh cover of take on me and I don't know. I find myself getting kind of offended by this this franchise's relationship with pop music <laughs> and how it's so winky, you know, whether, you know, whether it's Yentl or Air Supply or Aha or what else, what else do they use in here? Um there's a there's a Share needle drop, there's a Dolly Parton needle drop mm-hmm. and they don't all they are is just they're winking but they're not at all organic. You know what I mean? Like no. there's nothing about these songs that have anything to do with like, they don't even bother to make it like, oh, these are the songs that are on Deadpool's, you know, iPod or whatever, right? No. He literally at just one point says, all right, take it away, Dolly. And then they just play Dolly Parton's 9 to 5 during an action sequence because it's sort of not anachronistic. What's the word when 
something doesn't make sense with this other thing. <laughs> I mean, that's you know, an- like, anachronistic. That's what it is. Okay. Yeah. 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 It's just, it, it just makes zero sense. And that is being played as clever. The entire, the, you know, the first movie did that wall to wall as well. And I, I don't know. I just don't find it clever necessarily to throw in a song that seems like it doesn't belong here. Like that just in just conceptually is not fun or clever or interesting to me. Yeah, I 100% agree. I didn't find it interesting at all. And yeah, you're right. Like the, uh, again, this is just randomness in the place of a joke, right? It's like, it's it's not, it's not humor. It's just tossing shit against the wall and hoping something sticks. Like people are going, isn't that funny that they put Dolly, like, but why is that funny? It's just random. Exactly. Yeah. Irreverence doesn't just automatically equal clever. Yeah. I think is my, is my point here. So something that a decision that they make, which actually is kind of irreverent in an effective way is they actually bothered to have Celine Dion record a song for this movie. Yeah. Which I did like. Yeah. (laughs) Which is interesting because uh, they actually went to the trouble to get Celine Dion, have her record this original song. And then, they, they put it against the opening credits, which are modeled after a James Bond credit sequence, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, this one is like directly referencing Spectre, which I think is, I, I guess, makes sense considering it's the most recent James Bond movie. Um, did you like it? Did you think it was interesting? Did the audience laugh when during that credit sequence? I did appreciate the fact that the credit sequence comes, uh, what, almost 20 minutes into the movie. Yeah, I uh, I didn't... I actually enjoyed the credit sequence. I, I liked sort of the, the Bond nod and you know obviously they had a lot to uh the first movie's credit sequence was you know one of its biggest uh talking points and people absolutely fucking loved it so they were gonna have to try something with the with the new one the whole like uh trope of oh i can't believe can you believe they fucking killed the girlfriend the visually the bond thing i thought it was fine like i i didn't people weren't like laughing crazily i'm not sure everyone gets that it's a bond thing but i don't know i'm pretty indifferent (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I thought it was one of the things that worked, I guess, a little bit better than a lot of this. Sure. In terms of like tropes or references, uh, pop culture references, can we just go ahead and retire the whole Sandy thing holding a boombox over your head Seriously, outside somebody's window? Can, let's, can we just please retire What's the that? joke there? Why is it like it's a small boombox? I don't get it. Like, the, the, why it's is It's on his phone, I think, right? Isn't he holding his phone is up? He, he has holding a boombox his phone? app. Okay, great. What? <laughs> it's just, I hate it. It's enough. I mean, I appreciate the fact that a decision made, a creative decision on Cameron Crowe's part has just been referenced ad nauseum by this point. But yes, enough. Enough is enough. Even fucking Ready Player One does it too. Yeah. So, yeah, enough. Retire it. I'm with you. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't think this works as a movie. It doesn't work in a vacuum. It doesn't work by itself. I was listening to um, the film spotting a podcast over the weekend and they were revisiting Lord of the Rings because uh, uh, Return of the King just turned 15 or will turn 15 this year and um, <clears throat> they were talking about the fact that that's clearly a mini series of movies and they don't think that each individual film works on its own uh, independent of the other two and I found myself kind of disagreeing with them because I think each one of those movies kind of has its own arc each one of those movies I mean they're each three hours long so one would hope they can figure out a way to work an arc in there right mm-hmm and to me, as long as you know sort of like where the narrative thread is going over the course of that trilogy, I feel like you can revisit each movie on its own and it can work by itself. A film like this, I just don't think, A, I don't think it works if you haven't seen the first film, and B, I don't think it works if you don't understand all the things that the film is referencing. And 
I would say the same thing for something like Infinity War. You know, like I don't think that movie really works in a vacuum either. And I'm always going to have a problem with movies that have that problem. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I am just, call me old-fashioned, I'm just somebody who really feels like you need to be able to drop, you need to be dropped down in front of a movie in a vacuum, and it has to work on its own terms. Sure. And and something like this, to me, just doesn't. And I think we're getting into a really potentially kind of scary place nowadays with some of these franchise movies where they just take it for granted that you, um, you know, that you already get all this stuff and that you're already on board, that they've already... You've done, kind of done the homework. Done the homework, yeah. I mean, and I guess something like the most recent Spider-Man is an interesting conundrum in that I appreciate the fact they didn't feel the need to go back and remind us what happened to his uh, parents or to his uncle. Mm-hmm. The way that a lot of these movies, when they reboot, they always have to remind us why, you know, like what happened to Batman's parents or whatever. Sure. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm conflicted about the whole thing because I really want every movie to work whether or not you've seen everything that's come before. And nowadays we're so into this serialized thing. You know, it's all about this extended universe bullshit and it's all about the connective tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It, it, it troubles me. Yeah. I mean, there are very major issues at play here with the stuff you're bringing up. Um, and it is about the entire landscape of entertainment, right? From you know, TV to film to everything else. I don't mean to scapegoat Deadpool necessarily. I just found myself sitting there thinking, like, God, this movie just doesn't work on its own. As this, I just kept, they just kept the refrain I kept repeating. It was like, this is this is not a movie. This is not a movie. This doesn't work as a movie. Yeah, it's not a movie. Yeah, like, if you care about narratives, if you care about like the 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 bones of a story, it doesn't really work at all either um just going back really quick uh lord of the rings each movie definitely works on its own like they bent over backwards to make sure each movie had its own arc and was satisfying at the end i thought they did a great job uh, in that trilogy so i will i'll also disagree with the podcast i have not listened to um (laughs) but you know the serialization thing like i i get it for the marvel universe and i get it for comic books because it's literally like echoing what comic the the act of reading comic books is like. Yeah, of course to to understand what's going on in this comic book, you know, you have you had to have read the one from last week and then from the week before. You have to go all the way back to, you know, whatever wherever the narrative began. Um so so that makes sense. Uh but on a on a grander scale, man, like I felt the same way as you for for a long time and I've sort of rejected jumping into sort of this the TV renaissance not renaissance, but like peak TV, whatever people are saying. Yeah. I prefer like a self-contained narrative. Like I, I love a movie that can tell a full, you know, satisfying story in, in two, two and a half hours. Like I think that is yeah. the greatest entertainment feat you can have. And like it really makes it easier and takes the filmmakers off the hook when you don't have that as a requirement. And, and, and it just makes for lazy storytelling and you can sort of do whatever you want and just say oh it's part part of a story like we, we don't have to uh you know we, we don't have to tell this thing in a vacuum so i do think it breeds uh you know some some laziness uh storytelling wise on, on the part of the filmmakers uh, i'm not sure if it's going to change anytime soon though i'm very old school in terms of how i like my narratives to be contained and i really love that 90 to 120 minute capsule you know that container where you you Mm -hmm. you get your entire point across you manipulate me emotionally in that time period and you either get me there or you don't but that was your that was your chance 
as opposed to like, don't yeah. worry, eventually you'll be emotionally satisfied by this three movies down the road. I mean, I do think that the better Marvel movies are ones that really kind of exist in a vacuum and um, and can function under their own steam. Yes. And as many things as I liked about Infinity War, I'm not sure if it did. I think maybe the reason that I found myself leaving the theater kind of unsatisfied was because it just didn't scratch that itch. It didn't fulfill that obligation, which I think is so fundamental. All right. Well, I think we've said enough bad things about Deadpool 2. Um, <laughs> this is, this has Did been you? one of our most curmudgeonly podcasts of all time, for sure. <laughs> I feel like this was inevitable, um, <laughs> and I think this is nice. It's kind of cathartic. This is our second fucking Marvel movie in a row, so... Yeah. Can we please get a little AFI or Uber business done this week to kind of cleanse the palate a little bit? Yes, we can <laughs> do that, Matt. Before we have to talk about another franchise uh, movie uh, over Memorial Day weekend. Um, did you see, did did your Deadpool screening have the red band trailer for Happy Time Murders? Yes, and I we talked about that too. I laughed more during that than I did during all of Deadpool. <laughs> I did not know that movie was existed, and I... Never has a movie been made more specifically for me, I feel like. I'm so, <laughs> you are a big Muppet guy. I'm so fucking stoked about it. You are on board of the Muppets. Yeah, uh, sort of like a Who Framed Roger Rabbit situation in the in a world in which, you know, Muppets and Sesame Street are real. So, yeah, that trailer fucking killed. Uh, it completely brought the house down. Uh, there's a very specific silly string cum shot, and people were still... <laughs> laughing as the marvel um it was the last trailer that played and and people were still laughing as the marvel yeah insignia came out oh, before it was so good uh, deadpool i love so it i guess we'll have to look forward to that in august yeah absolutely um all right let's uh let's hang it up we'll uh we'll discuss uh solo next week and some more afi uber stuff in the coming days but until next time this has been we like movies say goodbye matt goodbye matt Rides like a knife, it can cut deep inside Words are like weapons, they wound sometimes I didn't really mean to hurt you I swore that I didn't care